for those of you that haven't been around or are visiting, this is a series called Dazzling Christianity. We're looking at the book of James and God calling backslidden people, God calling discouraged people back to himself. That's the theme of James. And uh, in a real sense, James deals with worldliness in people's lives and he's encouraging people to come back to uh, a foundational, a primary relationship with Jesus. And we've looked at three key themes, and I just want to recap quickly, and it will take me one minute. Because the first eight verses of James are really the key to understanding the whole book. And once we understand the first eight verses, the rest of the book reads easily, and all the other things start to make sense. So the three themes that we've looked at so far, just to refresh your memory, is the first was that of having joy in trials. Count it pure joy, brothers, when you face trials, when you face trials of, of differing things in your life. Count it pure joy. That was the first theme that James explores. And I, I preached a message called, I know it's tough, but hang in there. And that's what the theme was, of joy in difficult times, in difficult trials. Um, second, we looked at the theme of patience. That's the second thing that he kind of raises. And we looked at that script, that verse that said, let patience complete a perfect work in you. And we had a look at those, that, that theme, and I preached two messages, um, one called the Patience, the Pathway to Maturity, and the other one was called Wisdom from Heaven, because what James says, at the end of that, he says, if, if you lack anything, it might be wisdom, and then ask for wisdom, and we had a look at what that means. And then the last message I preached was um, around faith, it was called Faith, the Mirror of Our Hearts, and that's the third theme that James introduces in the first eight verses. And basically he says, if you start to know who you are, undoubting faith comes from knowing who you are in Christ, comes from knowing your gift, recognizing who you are, your limitations, and then recognizing who God is. And he says that kind of undoubting faith is uh, how we find ourselves, how we start to truly be who God has made us to be. And remember that is when I shone the mirror and walked around. And so those are the, those are the three main themes of, um, of James in the first eight verses. And, and now he begins to revisit some things, and uh, we're going to look at verse 9 to 11. And I've called this message this morning, The Camel and the Eye of the Needle. <laughs> the Camel and the Eye of the Needle. And we, uh, we're going to look at poverty, we're going to look at wealth, and that's why I wanted the guys to share, particularly in terms of Syria and Slovenia, because we're going to have a look what the Bible teaches about poverty and wealth, and it's very, very interesting. And I've called it the camel and the eye of the needle because of what Jesus said, and we're going to have a look at that as well. But um, James writes and he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower fades and its beauty perishes, so too will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. It's a challenging piece. And this is what I found the greatest challenge in when you're preaching expositionally like this, when you preach verse, from, verse to verse, you get to portions that are uncomfortable and yet you have to preach them. And here's one of those portions that is not comfortable to preach on, but I'm going to give it a best shot. James really is still talking about trials. Remember the first verse was counted all joy when you come into trials, and now he's again using that theme of rejoicing, and he's saying now, 
there's a financial trial that you might be going through, and I want you to rejoice in that as well. That's what he's basically saying. And uh, he's saying, unless we learn to handle financial trials in the right way, it can be a point of despair in our lives. And I've got a really specific goal this morning, is to try and set people free. Whether you have little or whether you have much, I want to try and set you free this morning through the preaching of the Word. And the verse that um, James says, uh, starts with there, where he says, the lowly brother, the lowly brother, is from a Greek word, tapienos. And tapienos means someone who is completely insignificant. Completely insignificant. Okay? Now, James was writing to a middle-class church, probably a church like ours. Uh, merchants, employees, Jewish traders. He was, that's the kind of guys that were scattered in the dispersion. He's writing to those kind of people. How many of you would recognize that in England there's probably five economic classes? There's the aristocracy, there's the upper middle class, there's the middle middle class, there's the lower middle class, and then there's the working class. Right? Well, now, James, this word that James uses, tabienos, is those that are off the scale. They're not even part of the working class. They are the poorest of the poor. The poorest of the poor. And he's saying to the poorest of the poor, you rejoice in your exaltation. That is an amazing thing. You rejoice that you are lifted up. That's what he's saying. And this is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That's what Jesus came to do. And what James is saying, and the Bible teaches very interestingly about wealth because, uh, and poverty, because James is saying that both poverty and wealth can be a trial. We like to think if we have enough, we have lots, we won't have any trials. It's not what James says. He says both poverty, not having enough, and wealth is a trial that we have to learn to manage well as Christians. And that's why Paul could say in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, he says this amazing thing. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Powerful. Whatever situation I am in, to be content. He carries on. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And this is the part that people always quote. I've heard this quoted so many times. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. How many times have you heard that? How many times have you not heard the context of that? Everyone goes around saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the content, the context actually is financial trial. The context actually is learning to be content in every and every situation. When there is much and when there is little, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's powerful. And poverty is always, always distressing, isn't it? And uh, the Bible always speaks as part with, uh, around poverty as a distressing thing. For example, Proverbs 10, A rich man's wealth is his strong city, 
The poverty of the poor is their ruin. I mean, the, poverty, the, the Bible speaks strongly uh, in a distressing way about poverty. But on the other side of the coin, the Bible always also says that there are very few that can remain spiritually strong when they become wealthy. The Bible is very honest when it talks about money and uh, it talks about wealth. And so there are many, many other scriptures that refer to that. And I want to give you a couple. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 13 says this, There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun, riches that were kept by their owner to his hurt. You can keep riches yourself to your own hurt. And those riches were lost in bad ventures, and he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Or what about Matthew 13, 22? As for what was sown amongst thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Jesus is saying that even the word can be robbed when we're too concerned about money and wealth. And, and then the title of my, of my message this morning out of Matthew 19, verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you again, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What on earth is Jesus saying? <laughs> We're going to have a look. I've got three points. This is basically an introduction, but I've got three points this morning. I think one of the most distressing things that I've seen in the last 20 years since I've been serving in the local church is uh, the local church, particularly in the West, becoming more and more associated with the middle class. More and more bourgeois. That's the French word. Bourgeois. Surely that's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. It cannot possibly be right. Jesus came preaching good news to the poor. And yet much of the Western church is middle class, bourgeois, catering for one section of the population. Now, I don't say this to condemn anyone here, and I see myself as a rich person. I really do. I have been blessed in my life in unbelievable ways. I don't, I have a wonderful family, I have great kids. I was just speaking with some guys this, this, uh, this week and just talking about what I wanted to preach. I'm speaking to Petri and just saying, you know, there's a residue, there's a residue in the Western church that, because of the faith movement, associates, if you are doing God, well with God, you are blessed financially. If you are not doing well with God, you are not blessed financially. And there's this equation which is completely wrong. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's the gospel. God pours out His blessing on rich and poor. God pours out grace gifts, common grace, upon all of humanity. And there are unsaved people that make a lot of money. Does that mean they're in a good place with God? It's ridiculous. Of course it doesn't. You hear what I'm saying? And yet we are, there's a residue from the faith kind of movement that says if you just tithe and give, God's going to bless you financially. I want to say sometimes we look for the blessing in the wrong place. I don't have much financially, but I've got a great family. I've got great kids. The blessing of God. 
Don't look for it just purely the blessing of God as a financial thing. It, it includes that. I believe God is faithful. He always provides. Scripture always says, also says, I've never seen the children of a righteous man begging for bread on the street. God provides. Hear what I'm saying. I was reading a, a commentary that R.T. Kendall wrote, and he said a very interesting thing. He said, do you know how to judge, test someone's character? Look at that, how, to, how they treat another person who possibly cannot do them any good at all. <laughs> we always, we like to treat people well who can give us something. Don't we? Can further our career. So we make sure we treat them well. What R.T. is saying is profound. How do you test a man's real character? Well, watch how he treats people who can give him nothing back. Fascinating. Jesus went to the poor. Who followed Jesus? The poor. He was constantly doing things for people that could not possibly give him anything back. And James. James was his brother. James was his half-brother. James knew that. And I think part of what James is trying to say is he's trying to keep Christianity from becoming a socially elite movement, a middle-class movement. The church cannot possibly be a middle-class movement. I'm sorry, I'm passionate about this. And I can understand how it can become a middle-class movement. Because why? Because when you're poor and you're saved, the first thing you want to do, and wherever the gospel is preached, if you read church history or if you read any history at all, whether the gospel is preached and the gospel comes, what follows the preaching of the gospel? Schools, hospitals, education. Why? Because when people are set free, there's a natural thing that God does and they want to get better themselves. And I'm not knocking that. I think that's brilliant. What I am saying is, if someone gets saved out of poverty and then gets stuck in a middle class environment and never reaches over the wall into anything else, that's the problem I'm speaking about. And so I am encouraging us, I'm challenging us as a church. We have felt for many years, God, how can we engage with the poor? And I'm praying. Uh, where's um, Claire and Doug? There they are. I'm praying for the school, man. I tell you, if that is God's way into the community for us, I will rejoice. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go and speak to Claire. It's incredibly exciting. When will you hear back your first? Don't know. A couple of weeks, we might hear. But there's a school site. There's millions of pounds put aside by the government. And there's a couple of people putting in applications, and we, the team from this church is one of them. And it is incredibly exciting because it's in a straight into community that's disadvantaged. Amen. So pray. Just speak to Claire at coffee time and pray and get some ammunition for your prayer. <laughs> All right? So I'm saying let's not get stuck. Let's not get stuck in a middle classness. James is not saying rejoice in poverty. The Bible never says rejoice in poverty. At the same time, James is not pitying the poor either. He does say the poor have something to rejoice about. He's saying you have something to rejoice about that the gospel has been preached to you, that you are going to be exalted. You're going to be lifted out of that. In eternity, you will be lifted out of that. And that's what Jesus said. He said, uh, Matthew 11, verse 5, Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Jesus. And we're going to look later in James chapter 2, verse 5. 
where James says an extraordinary thing. He says this, listen, my, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? I believe God has a special place in His heart for the poor. And He's given them special grace. He says here, James chapter 2 verse 5, says special grace that they have a measure of faith that we might not know something about. Because we're going to look at what that means in a short while. But my point is also that it's possible, and I believe God wants it to be like this, that we might, might, not, might not be rich materially, but we can be rich in the things of God. Right? We can be rich in the things of God. The poor can still be generous. Those who do not have much can still be generous. And I love this, one of my favorite scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. Paul's speaking about the Macedonian church. It's interesting, when we were there in Slovenia, Macedonia is just a little bit way down. It's fascinating to go to places where the Bible speaks of the Dalmatian coast, the Croatian coast. Paul, they were, they, the early church fathers were all there. It's incredible. And uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2 says this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given amongst the churches. The grace of God. To give. It's a grace gift to be generous. It's a gift of grace. We just think so narrow band about grace. Grace is about justification and being set free. Of course it is. It's also the grace of God to be generous. It's also the grace of God to work hard. It's also the grace of God to say no to ungodliness. This is the grace of God. This is a robust grace of God. Someone say amen because it's true. <laughs> and he says, the grace of God that's been given to the churches of Macedonia, for in their severe trial, in their time of testing, when they didn't have enough, when they could have withholded and said, I'm not going to give anything. What does it say? The abundance of joy and out of the extreme poverty overflowed a wealth of generosity on their part. And then he says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Isn't that beautiful? They didn't let their lack Stop them from being generous and sowing. I want to encourage you. Be generous in your life in terms of your friendship, your gifts, your time, your talent, everything. Be generous. God gives seed to the sower, not the withholder. I believe that. And God meets all our needs. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. And God, look at it again, the language. Have you seen how much grace is mentioned in all of these things? And God is able to make all grace abound to you. All grace, so that you having all sufficiently in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It's written, he is distributed freely, is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness, and you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Through which, in which this will produce thanksgiving to God. It's incredible. The Bible is amazing in terms of how it speaks about wealth and finances. And so basically, 
what James is saying is to this godly person who is poor, saying, just remember, that's going to be reversed one day. Remember, you are going to be exalted. You are going to be lifted up. God will provide for you in this life, but certainly when you step into eternity, all that is going to mean nothing anyway. And I want to say to you, if you have little at this time, I want to encourage you not to be intimidated. Because lack of finances, lack of means, has got nothing to do with your position in the kingdom. It's got nothing to do with the spiritual authority with which you walk. It's got nothing to do with that at all. And I want to say this. I don't know why the church has got to a place where suddenly people that are involved in business are elevated in a measure which is not right. Hear what I'm saying? It's not a biblical thing. Just because you've been gifted to produce wealth does not mean that you have a position of authority in the church. I'm going to explore that later. And if, you've, if you're going to, you might disagree with me, but I hope by the end of the, the evening, the end of the morning, you'll be convinced. Because it's what the Bible says. Don't be intimidated if you don't have money. Stand up. You have as much right in the church as anybody else to, ex- to exercise your spiritual gift. Amen. This is the gospel. It's good news to the poor. Poverty in spirit. I, I do want to just look at that because if you've read the gospels, you've read the, the, the Beatitudes, the beautiful sermon that Jesus preaches, the first thing he says is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember reading that? And it's important to say that here because I want to just clarify something. Those that have come into the kingdom, there's not one of us who's come into the kingdom who's not been poor in spirit, all right? That includes materially rich person, it includes those that are materially poor. What it means to be poor in spirit really has to do with an emptiness. It's saying, God, I need you. I recognize that apart from you, I can do nothing. I I want to say to you that for me, that is a a perfect, this little phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit, for this is the kingdom of heaven. It's a perfect expression of justification by faith. It's recognizing apart from Christ, we can do nothing. That's what it is. It's recognizing there's an emptiness apart from Christ. That's the foundation of everything. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And I need to say that here, particularly after we visited Slovenia, because in Luke chapter 6, the translation says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it doesn't say poor in spirit. And on that basis, many in the church have had this biblical justification to, to voluntarily um, engage in poverty, particularly the Roman Catholic Church and some of the the Anglican, high Anglican churches, where poverty is seen as getting you halfway into the kingdom. Because they take that verse. That's the, the, the scriptural basis. I want to say to you this, that a poor man is no closer to the kingdom than a rich man is. Being poor is not spiritual. There's no advantage to being poor. It doesn't guarantee spirituality. And much of the church has said that, and it's not right. I can understand that a poor person is more open to the gospel because they realize they have nothing anyway. It's when we become rich that our hearts become close to the gospel because we think we have everything anyway. That's the point. 
I'm convinced that what Jesus is talking of here is not being possessed by a worldly spirit, not being someone who is always reliant on riches. And can I say to you that those that don't have much can be as reliant on riches as wealthy people are? What I mean by that, because Jesus is condemning this reliance on riches, and there are many that don't have whose language is, if only I had more, if only I had more, if only I had more. That is a dependence on wealth to get you out of your situation. You hear what I'm saying? So those that are poor can be as dependent on wealth as rich people. What Jesus is talking about here, I'm absolutely convinced, he's talking about a poverty of spirit. He's talking about ultimately our attitude to ourself. That's the one thing that matters. Not whether we are materially poor or we are materially rich. Our attitude to ourselves, how we see ourselves and our need of Him. And James, last time I preached, James had a very good example of that. He talked about a godly man and he talked about a double-minded man. He talked about a spiritual man and he talked about a worldly man. That's exactly illustrated in this little phrase, blessed are the poor in the spirit before theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It makes a distinction right there. Right there. Clearly defines the two. So Jesus is talking about that. And you see, that is complete opposite to the spirit of the world. <laughs> I've said this before, but the world praises self-reliance. The world praises self-confidence. In fact, I've been to th- business things where they, they even try and encourage you to to pretend that you are successful, even if you're not, but to give off the aura of being successful because that is what will attract business to you. This is just completely the opposite of the spirit of the gospel. The gospel doesn't say that. The gospel starts, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see the kingdom of God. That's the starting point of the gospel. The starting point of the gospel is not, I'm so confident and I'm going to pretend that I'm confident. The starting point of the gospel is, Jesus, I need you. Completely opposite. Amazing, as I've just been chatting to some guys in business, it's like when sometimes you're at your lowest ebb, and you don't really know how God is going to, what's going to happen. It's like God just does something behind your back, and whoop, there it is. Just reminding us, actually, it's all about him. Eh? So, don't be someone that shakes their fist at God. Don't, don't be a person that says, God, just give me some of someone else's wealth. Because, you know, for me, that's the spirit of com- communism. That's the spirit of Karl Marx. Not the spirit of the gospel. And that's what we're going to look at now. Because the gospel doesn't say to rich people, repent of your riches. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> it doesn't say, go and sell all you have and give it to someone who has less. Jesus said that to the rich man, but the gospel, the tone of the gospel is not that. We're going to look at it now. What does James say in this verse that we're looking at? He says, the rich are also to rejoice. Hello? What? The rich are to rejoice. Yes, he says, the rich are to rejoice in their humiliation. What does that mean? 
I just want to remind you what Paul said. That there are not many rich and mighty in the kingdom. Remember? 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you had noble birth. But God. Lovely. <laughs> but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. It's good news to the poor. And here is a very interesting Greek word. Mario, I didn't get the time to check it with you yesterday. Plusios. Plusios, which comes from the, the, the word plero, which means fullness. And isn't it a fascinating contrast? Because just we looked just now about emptiness as being poverty of spirit. That's what Jesus is saying. You need to be empty. Here, the word for the rich man is one who is full in every way. Plusios. Plusios. Full in every way. In other words, need not absent of anything. Having everything. So what would you say to someone who has everything? That's a good question. What would you say to someone who has absolutely everything? We were on the Adriatic looking at these yachts, millions, millions, millions for one little yacht. What would you go and say to someone who has that kind of wealth to buy a yacht like that? If you really are a Christian, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. I mean, that sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? Sell all you have and give it to the poor. In other words, repent of being rich. But the Bible doesn't say that. If James did that, he would be following the spirit of Karl Marx, which is motivated by jealousy and not by love. James tells the rich to rejoice. They are to rejoice in their humiliation. The fact that they are being made low. That's what he's asking them to rejoice in. And I'm speaking to myself as a rich person. It's not a sin to be rich. We are asked to rejoice in humiliation. Well, what does that mean? Well, it simply means this. When you are rich in the world, what does it buy you? It buys you prestige. It buys you privilege. It buys you air miles. It buys you staying in the best hotel. It buys you numerous, numerous, numerous things when you're successful in the world. And you know what James is saying? He's saying when you come into the kingdom and you walk through these doors every Sunday and you come and worship with God's believers, there's no special prestige for you because you are rich and that is your humiliation and you rejoice in that. That's what James is saying. There is no special seat for you in the church, rich person. You are just like every single other person that is part of the kingdom. And you rejoice in that humiliation. <laughs> That's pretty strong. And that's why Jesus said, the camel and the eye of the needle. He's saying it's incredibly hard for a person who thinks they are full in every way, a person who thinks they need nothing, to come into the kingdom. 
Why? Because the kingdom belongs to those that start in the place who say, Jesus, apart from you, I have nothing. That's what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, empty yourself. If you're going to be filled by the kingdom, filled by my spirit, you need to empty yourself of those things. And that's part of rich man's humiliation. The rich man must accept that one day his, the position is going to be reversed. And we're going to look at that now. Riches are part of what is perishing in the world. Can't take it with you when you go. Even though you've got a brilliant, brilliant Mercedes Benz and you've got a wonderful yacht in the Bahamas. When you snuff it, the moment you go, you're like everybody else, you can't take anything with you. <laughs> Luke 12 says this, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who's made me a judge and arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. We would all be good advised to listen to that little thing. The measure of your life does not consist in what you have. The size of your house, your pension. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods and I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And God said to him, you fool. This night, your soul is required of you. And all the things you've prepared, what, they, what will they be to you? So, is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Store up for ourselves treasure in heaven. So James is laboring the point, and I, I trust I'm not laboring it too much this morning, but he's saying, don't put your trust in what is fading away. It's fading away. Don't put your trust there. Store your, put your treasure in heaven <laughs> where it can't be robbed from you. And he uses this amazing uh, little picture. He says, like a flower of the grass, it will pass away for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers with the grass and its flowers fail and its beauty perishes. So he uses an, a, an illustration from nature and he's saying basically nature is it's transitory. It's, it's not permanent. And he's saying that's what what riches are, and, uh, and those of us that are rich are called to rejoice in this fact, rejoice in this humiliation, that the riches that we have are fading away. That's what he's saying. 200 years' time, it's going to be nothing. How many of you have been to castles and abbeys, and you've seen plaques on the floor of great people from the past who were very wealthy, and now it's just a slab? It means nothing. And he's saying, he's comparing, he's saying, just like the sun and a blade of grass, he's saying that's how wealthy God is compared to you. Sun and a blade of grass. He says the second thing, he says, the blade of grass owes all its life to the sun. And the blade of grass also should remember that the same sun, thirdly, that brings life to it, can scorch and wither it instantly like that. That's what he's saying. That's what he's using in this illustration. Even the loveliest of flowers withers like that with too much sun. And so he's saying, rich, rich person, 
Just remember the suddenness with which God can take things away from you. It's certainly going to happen when you die, but you know it might happen now. <laughs> that's what he's saying. And that's why people commit suicide during recessions, don't they? Why men that have slaved all their lives and lost their families to play the stock market, when the crash comes, they can't take it anymore. They jump off a building. And James says, we're called to rejoice in the transitory nature of wealth if we have much. Rejoice. (laughs) The poor are called to rejoice in their exaltation. The rich are called to rejoice in their humiliation. And the last thing I want to say this morning, my third point is this. Let's be generous and not jealous. Let's be generous people and not jealous people. Because you could have been sitting there saying, well, Ant, you know, I'm not really wealthy. I'm just Mr. Average, and this doesn't really apply to me. You speaking about those guys that are really, I mean, extraordinarily wealthy, and it's got nothing to do with me. So thank you for the nice message, but it doesn't apply to me. Well, I want to say to you, I feel like when I was preparing this, James is speaking into a basic temptation for every single Christian. He's speaking into a basic, base level of jealousy in people's lives that affects every Christian. Because he's saying, he's addressing this kind of language of, if only I had more, it would be better. That's what he's addressing. If only I had more, it would be more comfortable. No, Paul is saying, and Jesus says, learn to be content in every situation. Whether you have much or whether you have little, James is not appealing to that Marxist jealousy. He's appealing to godliness in us and saying, learn to be content with whatever you have. Put your hope in what won't fade away. Isaiah 40, and I'm closing with this, Isaiah 40. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. And a voice says, cry out. And I said, what should I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely all people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. There is a way that we can experience something of the absolute blessing of God, and that's to identify with the poor. That's to be generous. That's to give ourselves away. That's to give out of what we... So we can identify with the poor, all right? And what James is saying is this. If you're wealthy, make sure you're a generous person. Don't be gullible about just giving your wealth away. Give it wisely, but be generous. If you're wealthy, if you have much, don't be arrogant about it. Because remember that God can take it away like that. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you're poor, if you feel like you don't have much, don't be intimidated in the kingdom. Don't be intimidated in the kingdom. Because wealth, at the end of the day, has nothing to do with spiritual authority. If all of you that feel like you don't have much, you get up in the church and you start your stuff. You have a gift. You use it. Whether you're a wealthy person or 
business person or not, it's got nothing to do with you exercising your gift. You exercise your gift. Every one of you. It's good news. Okay, I think it is. And he's saying, James is saying, everything will change at death anyway. Your life could change in an instant. And what he's saying is this temptation, not this temptation, this trial that we have to manage. The trial of poverty sometimes, of having little, and the test of having much is something that we have to grow in as Christians, and we have to learn to manage that well. And that really is my encouragement to you this morning. Remember the camel, remember the eye of the needle. Put your treasure in heaven. Put your treasure in what is not fading away. Put your treasure into God's kingdom, into his people, into loving others, into being generous. That's what really counts. Amen. Can we pray? Father, I want to thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the power of the gospel that sets us free. And I thank you for every single person here. I thank you for those in business that are successful. I bless you for that, Lord. And I just pray that increasingly they will become generous in your kingdom in every way. I pray, Lord, that all of us would not put our confidence, our trust in financial security, but our confidence and our trust would be in you. I pray, Lord, for those this morning that feel like they don't have much, I pray they would not be intimidated by that fact. I thank you, Lord, that your word says that we will be exalted one day, and you are lifting up and restoring and meeting our needs, and we we want to rejoice in that this morning as well. And I, I just pray, Father, that every person would exercise their gift in this church, and they would not feel disqualified in any way. Because ultimately, Lord, these things are all passing, they're all fading. And Lord, we want to store up for ourselves treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. And we bless you this morning for your gospel that sets us free in every way. To be ourselves, to enjoy our gifts, and to enjoy you as our Father in heaven. And we bless you this morning in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.